You are listening to Mark Hatmaker Rough and Tumble Raconteur. This is a grab bag of old school Western martial arts, resurrected indigenous ways and empirical musings tinged with a heavy dose of respect, admiration, let's call it hero worship, for these hosses of yore. Crew, this is Mark Hatmaker coming to you from the Comancheria. Uh, I am back from a sojourn in the southwest, the deserts, the Red Rock country. Uh, far more than that. Absolutely revivifying and illuminating and uh, went out there to confirm some scholarship. Anyway, that out of the way. Let's call today's discussion the way of the warrior or the way of the hunter or the way of the outlaw. Uh, if, uh, stay with me. I promise this is all martial-related, martialism, martial arts. It's open with a quote from Bob Younger, who was an outlaw in the old days of the Cole Younger gang. Quote, we are rough men used to rough ways, unquote. Now, that quote was uh, Younger's simple explanation for the why of he and his compadre's life choices. Uh, the explanation does not excuse evil or crime, and, but we're going to use this as a jumping-off point regarding immersion as shaping the animal via environmental response. Again, we'll do a little animal ethology here and move forward. Trust me, we're going to get to all the fighting stuff, the combat stuff, the real deal nitty-gritty, I promise you. See, uh, Younger is referring to the hard scrabble frontier upbringing and uh, the, he, uh, he endured and uh, then his delving into guerrilla warfare in the bloody border states, the Civil War period, both pre and during. Uh, these organized live off the land, shoot with both hands with reins and the teeth tactics continued on and on in the bad choices of post-war crime. Now, these rough ways did not and do not justify the bad moral choice. There's plenty of rough race men and women from this time period that shows the bright and true. Now, the rough ways merely points to the fact that often there is more to shaping the animal than the assumed uh, specific attributes. So like uh, great two-hand shooters from atop a horseback, reins the teeth, and plus more and more, all this, so much of the frontier knife work and all this. And so often we want to extract that, perhaps not look at some uh, auxiliary skills that are going around behind it. We're forgetting that may bolster it just as much as the actual training, the specific. Okay, now again, what do I mean by that? Um, Let's uh, subdivide this and say there's rough ways versus compartmentalization training and versus abstraction. Now, those are the three choices these uh, we as warriors can make. Again, rough ways, compartmentalization, and abstraction. Uh, now, be it we are warriors of the past ways or the present-day sportive aspects of warriorness, as particularly those, uh, if you're a, one who embraces the old-school path, you're going to want the embracing of the rough ways. Now, let's, uh, let's approach these three things in reverse order of absolute utility. So we're going from least useful to most useful. First, abstraction. Now, abstraction or theorizing or in the specific parlance of learning theories called Platonizing from Plato would like to break things into ideal categories that don't really exist in the, in the real world. They sound great and true and wonderful in our minds. We can discuss them over coffee, but whenever the rubber is the road, you get that cancer diagnosis, the tire uh, goes flat, and while you're running at 80 uh, miles per hour, yeah, all these ideals go away. We need something different. We need specifics. We need real life life. So Platonizing is the least valuable and likely it's the most harmful to approach combat arts. Hell, almost any endeavor, but particularly combat arts, which we know is actually an in the thick, in the midst of things. Platonicity assumes that theories, general categories, ideals are the same as facts that is, uh, are tangible expressions of knowledge. We can get so mired up in these, discussing these ideas and think they mean something, well, they may not mean anything. Platonicity treats the gorgeously expressed strategy in a text as equivalent to any actual execution. Platonicity, or abstraction, regards the time spent dogging or a copy, uh, 
A copy of Grossman's On Killing is valuable as active range time. You can highlight all the books in the world. You can memorize passages, but it doesn't mean anything. We've got to do something. And sometimes we say, well, I do this, and then I do that. And that's getting closer. And uh, trust me, I love scholarship. I'm all about it. But make sure that we might need to have an 80-20 rule on it, where we're spending most of the time with the hands-on in the muck stuff. Platonicity reviews uh, the flow chart or the PowerPoint or uh, a nice TED Talk or the etymological breakdown of the myriad kung fu systems as bestowing of wisdom on par with the man on mad hours missed in the coon or dojo or any standard gym. Uh, esoterica is esoteric and it doesn't really get you anywhere. It's angels dancing on the head of a pin. Now, epistemology studies, which is you know how we learn, demonstrates again and again that the text, the classroom, the erudite theory is not the battlefield never is. And we can take something even as standard as uh, chess playing. Often we always use this as a, a shortcut uh, archetype in uh, fictional. So we'll see someone who's a great chess player in, in film or television or, or books and go, ah, and then we portray them as some sort of uh, genius in these other fields. That's the halo effect. These things, whenever we actually throw the studies on it, these things don't really apply. It's not the same thing at all. Some of these people can't even pay their taxes. I'm not knocking on chess players. I'm just pulling this out saying... You know, uh, proficiency in a single skill or single, single area does not automatically imbue you with things across the domain. So of warriors avoid Platonicity. Warriors avoid abstraction. Now, our next uh, way we could train would be compartmentalized training. Now, this is far better than abstraction uh, because uh, this is actual physical expressions of the endeavor to be studied. Uh, we add the designation compartmentalized here. As often, this refers to training that is extracted and removed from original or likely environments, okay? Uh, the easy example here is sport of combat. Boxing is not a street fight. No matter how effective it is and great it is and how it might, training in boxing might aid and abet you in a street fight. But we all know this ain't a street fight. There are other adjuncts that must be considered. Jiu-jitsu is not a knife mugging. It's great. It's wonderful. Formidable. But it's not a knife mugging. It doesn't help you. And your local range. I don't care how good of a damn shot you are. This is not Fallujah. There are parameters that are completely different whenever we, uh, if we're making assumptions about any sort of transfer, it's kind of like the chess player assuming that they're going to be, you're a great tax account. It just doesn't happen. Any claims for boxing, jujitsu, or range firing beyond the confines of the domain are dubious. No matter how effective and likely helpful the sport of endeavor may be, they're not guarantees of anything beyond their domain. Yes, we must extract perilous bits from training to make it accessible and available for our long-term practice. But the more the remove from reality, the more the compartmentalization, the less and less it is reflective of realities. But in learning theory, compartmentalization is not really sporting up the reality we wish to portray. It is the extraction of the single desired bit of information and practicing that in isolation, assuming that the entity existed in isolation in the original instance. Usually, this is never the case. Now, what do I mean by this extraction? Well, I could be something as simple as uh, maybe you're staring uh, at films of Usain uh, Bolt, you know, hitting a 50 or 100 yard, whatever sprint distance you want. We know we're all acknowledging Ereva Man is touted as one of the fastest humans uh, who has ever lived. And maybe we just stared at how he leaves the sprinting blocks. And there could be a lot to be, there's probably a lot to be gleaned and not to be learned from there. But let's say we only studied that and said, that's why he's fast. And that's, that's all we worked on, how to position ourselves in the blocks. And we would all know, oh, there's probably more to it than that. There's, uh, there's these partial Nordic curls that's going on. There's uh, the, the all the running that's going on, the, the backwards. There's so much going on ancillary to this. There's far more than just the, the training application to it that contributes to any given performance. So compartmentalizing and chopping it up is a little bit so much logic uh, chopping, and we're back to angels uh, dancing on the heads of pins. 
Let's go with combat examples. Let's talk uh, battle axe or tomahawks for just a moment. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, uh, there's many modern expressions that these two weapons, of, like I said, tomahawk and battle axe, are using patterns taken from sword, stick, or blade. Systems. That is systems and weapons with entirely different characteristics. Often the tomahawk axe is wielded only as a weapon in mock battle scenarios now, and never it was originally intended. Originally the axe or tomahawk would be used often, likely every day. For everything, but as a tool, for everything from uh, splitting kindling, shaving shingles, making shelter, etc. Those with everyday hands-on utility understand tool, that is, weapon characteristics far more than any gym-only mock combat dilettante. All right, so if we've got the gorgeous, you know, battle axe on the wall or the, the wonderful tomahawk that we've uh, picked up at the trading post, but we're not using it all the time, we don't have the same easy familiarity with it with someone who actually is using it all the time. The warrior who wielded an axe or tomahawk every day for mundane matters suffered from no theory blinders when it came to combat uses of the same weapon. For more deep in the details, what we see, I would, uh, I would guide you over to the Black Box Project uh, where each volume discusses some tomahawk. Or if you just want battle axe, take a look at our, our, our DVD, Battle Axe Secrets. You'll see how deep in the weeds we're discussing with historical context of how these things were really used. You even get down to wrist pivot and deflection, and you go, oh, yeah, that's, uh, that's far different from choreography. Stay with combat examples. Let's discuss uh, grappling or wrestling. We're going to take a single example, leg riding, for example. I mean, the best grapplers, be they jiu-jitsu or catch, can ride like hell using just the legs. Good leg riders drill multiple entries and a staggering variety of follow-ups. Even these good grapplers do so only on the gym, though, only in the mat. So there's kind of a bit of a domain specificity there. Whereas formerly wrestling and horsemanship co-evolved. Even non-wrestling women and children can ride a horse and understood leg control, balance, and adductor use that uh, we mere pony trail riders maybe once every vacation to can never uh, understand. The best leg riders of yore, we got to think about where all some of the great leg wrestlers uh, came from. We're talking to the, the, the Mongolian steppes. We're talking to the, uh, the Plains Indian tribes, our, our, our early uh, wrestlers whenever we're across the pond to this side. Uh, these were all men who rode horses into battle or more war uh, rode them every day. Men and women who were familiar with the active nature of riding a horse. Which, when you're really doing it, not just trail riding, can be a conditioner. Let us not forget, uh, even as the horse was losing sway in urban areas, gentleman Jim Corbett still found horseback riding a valuable conditioner for his boxing. Now, we're talking not the passive thing. This is really doing it. I mean, really riding, okay? Uh, not trotting. Uh, warriors who worked without a saddle built astonishing leg control and balance that also informed their wrestling game. Comanche warrior culture was a horse culture. Their exploits atop a bareback, bareback horse are, are, I mean, these are legendary. Now, the Comanche and other Plains tribes' iterations of leg wrestling games, and there are many of these that are just waiting to be uh, 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 use our archaeological digging skills to get in there and see there's better and perhaps more fearsome ways to have our leg entries in our modern mat game as well. And that's another thing we throw in the Black Box Project, using these un unearthed ways of just trying to re revitalize them, rejuvenate them, and put them back in the game. Anyway, many of these uh, leg wrestling games are steeped in an unusual entries and executions that can only be unlocked by sampling aspects of so-called rough living, having uh, ridden horses, uh, Comanche, bareback, and all that, which I've, I've done this now, and I've worked on it. So, am I great? Hell no. But it does immediately, once you get just a single afternoon of it, you start going, if you're already leg wrestling, then you go, oh my God, this means this, this means this, yeah, on and on and on and on. But more the, there's uh, things to be learned there more than just compartmentalizing working leg riding itself. I've leg, I've leg riding and wrestling for decades, and here we go. You can spend just a mere week working on this, uh, the bareback, and you go, there you go, brother. Now I'm smelling it. Continuing on with our combat examples, we'll talk about boxing or striking example. 
We know fine strikes, fine punchers are more about cohesive snap than they are about brute power. I mean, excellent striking is the symphonic harmony of coordination from the balls of the feet, precise extension of the knees, snap and torque of the hips, sine wave uh, of the torso, uh, resultant whip crack of the fist upon the surface. There you go. Now, anyone who's coached rookies through how to hit knows that this head, I mean, this toe-to-hand esoteric is the toughest portion to get across. And I'll be honest with you, some just never seem to get it. Often these sorts of uh, striking are reduced down to formulas and saying, you know, force equals mass times acceleration. And that tells us nothing. That does not tell us a damn thing about how to throw a punch. And even just bare bones breaking it down this little bit by bit, this logic uh, chopping doesn't do it. Educating the snap is far more esoteric. Uh, and so let's talk about the rough ways again. Let us recall that many fine strikers came from the occupations of lumberjacking, railroad building, mucking, and all like endeavors were day in, day out, enduring, snapping force with axe, sledge, mattock, etc. were the norm. In a day pre-jackhammer, pre-chainsaw, pre-easy-to-rent bobcats, uh, men built roads, uh, built railways, I mean, drove spikes, dug canals, uh, built foundations by dint of human horsepower. This is effort that spawned familiarity with snap and power. We talked about with the battle axe and the tomahawk, people who are familiar with the tool in, by just standard usage. Well, here these people are yearning, uh, using their own body, the, the how to snap that body itself. These professions made easy transfers to early pugilism and boxing, and a significant number of our pound-for-pound pound punchers came from these lumberjack, blacksmith, gandy dancer worlds of coordinated expressions of power. Now, today's power tool using construction crew, no matter how grueling that job can be, and hell, I've done it. It is grueling. It is not the same crew that built homes 100 years ago. The snap was embedded before the punch was educated. Again, rough ways. These are ancillary uh, concepts. Now, historian par excellence, Jacques Barzun, reminds us that we never really understand a work of art, a piece of literature, a political movement, unless we also understand the overall environment in which it was birthed. Sure, we can sit around and, you know, criticize Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto easily, and I'm not saying we shouldn't uh, criticize it, but often what is missed, if we understand the milieu when something like this is, is being spawned, we look at that, we get an idea of how it even comes about, where it's just not a poor idea uh, being put together, or an idea, you disagree with we understand what everything is going on you start to understand and find some sympathy or empathy for the conditions that build such things and then you're able to go at it not just attack a work itself or normally if attacks the wrong word to understand a work itself but you understand everything that goes around it and spawns it and births it. it's trying to like trying to criticize someone's relationship without seeing the entire thing and living with them day in day out art historical appreciation and isolation is compartmentalization uh, so it's taking single bits of data and assuming that is the case context is key, be it physical, intellectual, or physical endeavors. Now let's uh, move on. Rough ways, the deep historical biological perspective. I'm going to give you a long quote here from, uh, this is scholar Paul Shepard, a natural philosopher, uh, well-studied in human evolution. This is, uh, he's referring to the world into which our forebears were born and to pre-so-called uh, modern civilization. This is the world which persisted far longer with many an indigenous culture. This is from his book, Coming Home to the Pleistocene. Quote, children in primal societies have access to the scenes of life, such as butchery, copulation, birth and death, especially within the family and within nature. They live in a rich, non-human plant and animal environment at the time of language acquisition, and are given the opportunity to name animals as a co-player. 
And what I mean by that is the actual, they see the animals. It's not a digital flashcard or you're seeing, say, like the cow goes moo. <laughs> Back to Shepard. Taxonomy is fundamental to cogn- cognition as well as grounding in a real world. From birth, the lives of children are keyed to the daily, monthly, and seasonal round. These cycles are the true pulse to which their blood resonates. It's distinct from the clock, electronic calendar, and historical regulators of our own lives. Unquote. Now, this entire books, almost every book by Shepard is saying how this embedding imbues sort of a different uh, psyche within this human animal, something that we don't really necessarily have anymore. I chose that single uh, kind of poetic extract to get us on the path. This long view of human life sees the species emerging and growing in an immersive environment where abstraction and compartmentalization uh, weighs little on the scale. So as we 21st denizens advance, I'm talking about me and you, brother, uh, we may be able to access a stargazing app uh, at will. We have it right there on our phone. Ready access, good to go. But simply having, but honestly, most of us have that app, but we have zero idea at what point or time the moon will rise over our very own home this evening. Now, that is abstraction and assumption of knowledge over embedded knowing, where formerly we should be able to go, yeah, it's going to rise uh, right there. I can point at the direction, and, you know, as it moves through the next night, we're going to have the 11-minute jump, I mean, 11-degree jump, so this is going to be 50 minutes later. It's going to be right here at this time and this. And instead of this, I have to go through and learn this abstractly, but it doesn't work until I go out there and actually put the time in to do this. I just spent some time, again, as I said, in the Southwest. It does no good to just simply follow uh, trails to see what uh, someone's seen before. Of course, everybody's seen stuff before. You've got to get some insight side scanning knowledge and go way off the trail. you got to find where people don't really go. It's places where only locals know. Actually, indigenous knowledge, modern indigenous knowledge, and then go in there and dig through the grid and find out what is there to be not never seen before, but seldom seen before. Now, we know the date. Uh, I mean, we're no longer wonderful with the just modern timekeeping because we've, uh, we've got a watch and, and it just tells us what time everything is. I mean, we know the date when the new Marvel film will uh, debut. But we almost none of us know the clockwork opening of the dandelions in our own front yard every spring and summer day. I mean, these things help time for us. Almost every plant, animal, flower, or does it mean? Well, that's what the seasons are for. There's times being told. I know I'm sounding somewhat esoteric here, but I'm saying there's a difference between abstraction. And you go, oh, it's spring, right? Or elevated, embedded knowing of something. Paul Shepard goes on to say, quote, Toys in modern society may be a burden to children in ways we do not yet understand. They objectify the world as passive and subordinate to ourselves and, despite childhood pretending, are non-living. Toys may be symptomatic of social deprivation, solitude, and isolation, unquote. I'm going to break that down. To be clear, it's kind of a jaundiced view, but by Mr. Shepard, but, uh, and he's referring to children and toys, but it is informative to note that he penned that, this books before the advent of endless online absorption uh, for adults. This is before grown adults, uh, grown adults lost themselves in video games, the fantasy worlds, perpetual tiny screen abstractions. I spent uh, extensive time in the airports. I'm sure all of us do, but just this past week, I'm looking around. I'm going to say, yeah, children. Oh, here, take the, take the phone, stare at it. And this is what they do to keep them quiet but I, I, that's no problem that's not the kid's choice the kid's doing what he's told to do I look around I see adults that have no idea where they are what's going on but they're all yeah we all like to be entertained man I want you to listen to my podcast I want you to watch wonderful things as well but people God, we're just looking down and abstracted and we've lost ourselves and uh, some toys uh, make of that what you will for our purposes, it's easy enough to say that for millennia, this species was far more immersed in the immediate and the present, and all of what they did, be it combat arts or culinary arts, life was overlapped and shaded by other unsuspecting aspects of that lived life. 
Now, we, we make a mistake if by using a scalpel and piecemeal excising the aspects of interest and assuming they exist as compartmentalized holes is tantamount to assuming that the unused app in your pocket imbues you with the ability to seal an uncharted sea. Now, you've got to use doing over uh, doing and action over platonicity, over abstraction. You've got to have immersion over dissected cadavers. Rough men who live rough ways no more than soft men who read about and guess at or play at other rough ways. Now, if uh, you dig such things, great. If not, it may sound like hectoring. I don't mean it to be that. I'm not a jaundiced view in anti-technology, anything like that. It's a wonderful boon. But I am for the old ways, and often what I see being done old ways, not all, but often what I do see is extractions. Now, what we do here, ExtremeSelfProtection.com, the Black Box Brotherhood. That's where we have our monthly, there you go, subscription service. Here you go, old ways. is steeped in the living experiment of old school combat and physical training resurrection as it was then. And that involves immersing in as many auxiliary old ways as a man can manage to better inform the whole. Now, if you want more information on that, obviously, I'll put some show links in here to ExtremeSelfProtection.com. You can run over to do our Indigenous Ability blog. I'm talking there's thousands of pages of resources there. But if you really want to get in the nitty-gritty and your hands dirty and really actually do this stuff, I would urge you to have a look over many of our uh, uh, audiovisual products, our, our, our books, 15, 16, hell, I don't know, 19 books over there. And then, of course, the Black Box Brotherhood is really where the meat is all at. Anyway, thanks for putting your ears on it this long. If you did, take care of yourself, crew. Well, if you dig what we just discussed today, uh, I'd like to invite you to like and subscribe to the podcast. Hell, support it if you want. I'm not your dad. Do what you want. And if you're a glutton for punishment, uh, just visit our website, ExtremeSelfProtection.com. You'll find links to the blog, all of our products, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more pages of like musics. <laughs>